Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what do we like to do here at Whitefields? We like to study through books of the Bible. And so we've been journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians right now. And one of the things I love about studying through books of the Bible is it makes you do some hard things. One of the hard things it makes you do is it makes you go through and study passages in depth that you might generally kind of skim over, skip over. And I think we have another one of those passages today. But what I've found is that these kind of passages make you dig a little more And they make you, you know, when you dig a little more, you often find even more treasure under the surface. Well, let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who loves us and wants to speak to us. We thank you that you're a God who came to us and was embodied like us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as embodied beings to live in a way that honors you, that seeks you, and fulfills your purposes for our lives. And use this time in your word to move us forward in that process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 2002, and I had just moved to Hungary, where I was serving as a missionary. And the last thing on my mind was getting married. That was like the last thing I was thinking about. It was also the last thing I wanted. I wasn't interested in doing that at all. In fact, I was actually kind of against it. When I had moved to Hungary, I had a girlfriend who I had started dating shortly before I moved to Hungary. And on uh, Valentine's Day, I decided this would be a good time to break up with her. And the reason was because, um, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's really hard to have a relationship with somebody when you're halfway across the world. And remember, this was back before we had all these, you know, technologies and stuff to do that kind of stuff. So we broke up because I was really, you know, busy serving the Lord, and I was excited about what I was doing in Hungary, and I didn't want to be distracted by having to maintain some relationship with somebody halfway across the world. I wanted to give that my whole focus. Well, what I was doing there, I was working with youth, I was working with students, and two days a week, I would visit a refugee camp on the edge of our city where 2,000 Afghan refugees were being housed. Now, remember, this was right after 9-11. So all these Afghan refugees were flooding in to Europe, and there was this UN uh, refugee camp that we would visit. And together with another missionary, we would go to this camp twice a week, and she would visit the women and the children, and I would visit the men, and we would give out humanitarian aid, and we would also hand out Bibles in the native languages of the different nations that were there. And we would talk to them about Jesus. And we saw so many people come to Christ from Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran during this time. It was a very special and exciting time. And I remember one day I was there in the camp in particular, this one specific day. We were at the refugee camp and we were walking between these two buildings. And I looked over at that other missionary that I was serving with. And I thought to myself, you know, if I ever do get married, I want to marry somebody just like her. You know, somebody who had a heart for ministry and for mission, somebody who wanted to give her life in service to the Lord and to tell people about Jesus. I hadn't met very many people like that in my life before, and being around her, it inspired me to be a stronger Christian, to know my Bible better, to grow and mature in my faith. And I thought to myself, man, I hope that someday I can find somebody just like her. But that's probably not going to happen, because where, where would you find somebody like that? And then I just said, 
oh well. And I just kind of went on with my life. It took me a while to figure it out. But eventually I did figure out that I could just marry her. And I did. It was th almost three years later, I married that other missionary. You see, originally, I didn't want to get married because I didn't want to have a ball and chain. You guys know what a ball and chain is like, right? It slows you down. It ties you down. I didn't want that. I didn't want a relationship that was going to hold me back from running the race that God had set before me. But here's what I realized. I realized that if you can find somebody who's running the same race, then it's not going to hold you back from running your race. If you can find somebody who's running the same race and heading the same direction, that relationship can actually help you to run your race rather than hinder you from running the race that God put before you. Because you can become a team, right? You wear the same shirt. You can spur each other on. You, you can encourage each other when, when the other one gets worn out or needs some encouraging. You could be a team. And so that's what happened. Rosemary and I, we were already running the same race. So we just put on the same shirt. We became a team, and we've been running that race ever since together. Friends, do you realize that you are in a race? You are in a race. Now you're like, no, I'm sitting. No, no, you are in a race right now. There is a course that God has laid out for your life, and he wants you to pursue it and go after it like an athlete running a race. Look at what it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It says, therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Now, this summer, we watched the Olympics, right? One of the things I love about the Olympics, now, I like to run, but I think that even if you don't run yourself, uh, you have to appreciate the track and field events. Because, right, this is just people out there with just their bodies, right? There's nothing extra. There's no devices, nothing. There are people out there with their bodies just going for it. And there's something just pure and simple about it. I love the running events. But you know what you never see in the running events? You never see anybody like carrying a backpack or like carrying like a laptop and a charger and just like running down there. Why not? You could carry a lot of stuff in a backpack. Think about it. Marathons are long. You could read on the way. You could take some notes. You could stop, take some photos. You do lots of things with a backpack. Why doesn't anybody wear a backpack? Is it against the rules? No, it's not against the rules. It's totally legal to wear a backpack in the Olympics or in a marathon. It, why don't they do it, though? Well, obviously, the reason is because it would slow you down. It would hinder you rather than help you. In other words, you could do it, but you don't do it because it doesn't help you to run your race. Even though it's not against the rules, you still don't do it, you see? And so what this text is telling us here in Hebrews 12 is that God has set a course for your life. He wants you to pursue it wholeheartedly. And that means that there are things in this life which will hinder you from running that race, and there are other things in this life which will help you from running this race. And what this text is telling us is that what we should do is with our eyes fixed on Jesus, cast off all the stuff that won't help us, bring on all the stuff that will help us so that we can wholeheartedly pursue the calling that God has put on your life. Now, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what we're going to see is that the Corinthian Christians were holding on to some stuff that wasn't helping them to grow and mature as disciples of Jesus. Instead, they were holding on to stuff that was actually hurting them, not only spiritually, but also physically and emotionally as well. And Paul the Apostle, as their friend and as their spiritual father, is going to confront them about these things. And he's not just going to confront them and say, hey, don't do this. He's going to show them a better way, not only a better way to live, but also a better way to make decisions about what we do and don't do as followers of Jesus who have received a new life in Christ. 
The title of today's message is, Why Does God Care What You Do With Your Body? Why does God care what you do with your body? And here's what we're going to see in this passage. Here's our summary sentence. This will also function as our outline for studying this passage today. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance, and knowing this helps us understand and respond to what Jesus did for us. Now, we're going to have that sentence. We're going to keep repeating that throughout this message. I encourage you, take it down in your notes. Take a photo. Whatever you got to do to take that thought with you as you go today, that one sentence in your mind as we go. And that'll also be our outline for studying this passage. So let's break it down and study the passage. First of all, as embodied beings. Let's talk about this aspect of being embodied beings. Look at how Paul begins this section in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In order to understand these verses and what they mean, you need to remember the context of what is happening here in this letter, what Paul's been talking about and what he's continuing to talk about here in this letter. Let me give you just a quick rundown. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in response to two things. Two things. Number one, he wrote it in response to questions the Corinthian Christians had written to him about in a different letter, asking him doctrinal questions. So he's going to respond to that. The other thing that he wrote this letter in response to was he received a disturbing report about the Corinthian church. He received this report. And so for the first six chapters of this book, Paul has been addressing the disturbing report that he received about the Corinthian church. And then starting in chapter 7, Paul is going to answer the doctrinal questions that they had asked him in the letter that they wrote to him. But here's what's interesting. The final thing that Paul addresses regarding this disturbing report he heard about the Corinthian church is related to one of the doctrinal questions that they wrote to ask him about. And so here in this section, we're going to look at the last part of the disturbing report and the first part of answering their doctrinal questions. And you could summarize them both. Kind of the big theme of this whole section is summed up in the sentence or the question, Why does God care what you do with your body? Now, isn't that a question that so many people ask today? Isn't it? You've heard the mantra, right? My body, my choice. Other people would ask, is it really a good thing for us to base our ideas of what we should and shouldn't do with our bodies on a book that was written thousands of years ago in a completely different culture? Is that a good idea? Why would we do that? And why does God care what I do with my body anyway? Doesn't he have bigger things to worry about, like preventing nuclear wars and answering people's prayer requests and things like that? And listen, if there are things that make people feel good and it makes them happy to do those things, then why would God tell them not to do those things? Doesn't God want us to be happy? And, and why doesn't God just kind of stay in his, in his lane, worry about God's stuff, and just leave people here on earth to worry about what we do with our own bodies? In the same way that many people ask these questions today, people back then were also asking these same questions, including some of the people in the Corinthian church. Because the final issue that Paul is going to address in regard to this disturbing report is one of the most disturbing of all. 
And that is that he heard in this report that some of the Corinthian Christians were in the habit of visiting prostitutes. And Paul's going to address that. He's going to say, wait a second. I hear that you guys are visiting prostitutes. Others of them were involved in other kinds of sexual immorality, and they didn't see anything wrong with it. And so Paul's going to talk about this. Why does God care what you do with your body? He's going to answer that question. Now, Paul began this section earlier in chapter 6, right? In, in verses 9 through 11, which you guys looked at last week when Pastor Mike taught, Paul basically laid this out. He, re, he listed some of these immoral practices, and he said, these things are sin. And then he said, you know, these kinds of things that you're doing, these are more things related to who you used to be before you followed Jesus, before you were redeemed by Jesus. It's not who you are now. This is who you were. It's not who you are. Now you're followers of Jesus. Now you're saved. Now you've been washed and redeemed. And what Jesus did when he died for you on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus didn't only come to forgive your past. He also came to give you a new future. He came to, give you, to make you a new person, to set your life on a whole new course. So why would you continue doing things that are sin and that God has said not to do? And so, picking up in verse 12, look at what Paul says. He says, all things are lawful for me. And then in verse 13, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, notice that both these phrases in your, in your text, they're in quotation marks. In other words, these aren't things that Paul is saying, and he's saying this is true. He is quoting from common arguments that people would give in order to justify their immoral behavior, in order to say, here's why it's okay to visit prostitutes. Here's why it's okay to have these sexual relationships that are outside the bounds of what God has laid out in Scripture as being the boundaries for, for sexual activity. And the first argument there in verse 12, some people would say, all things are lawful for me. And what that meant essentially was this, hey, I'm not doing anything illegal. That's really the argument they would make. In other words, they would say, hey, this isn't against the law. These are two consenting adults doing whatever they want to do. Listen, prostitution was legal in that society. In fact, it wasn't only legal, it was exceedingly common. Prostitution was so common in Corinth that we know that there was a euphemism in the Roman Empire at that time where they would say that a Corinthian companion, that was a euphemism for a prostitute. So prostitution was legal and it was common in Corinth. And so basically the, the Corinthian Christians would say, hey, visiting a prostitute is perfectly legal around here, right? And also sleeping with someone who I'm not married to, if we're both consenting adults, that's not against the law. So if I'm not breaking any laws and I'm not hurting anybody, then how can that possibly be bad? Furthermore, somebody would say, and this is the second argument that Paul brings up that he quotes that some people would, would use. Some people would say, food is, for the is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And what they meant by this is that just as when your body is hungry, you give it a sandwich, when your body wants sex, you give it sex. That's all. It's that simple. As human beings, just as we have hunger, and we feed our stomachs. We also have sensual cravings and desires. And the healthy thing to do is to satisfy those desires. In other words, fulfilling your sexual urges is no different than eating a sandwich when you're hungry or going to the bathroom when nature calls. That's what these people would say. They say these are natural desires. It's how your body functions. So if we can do it in a way that's not illegal and doesn't hurt anybody, how could that possibly be wrong? 
We're not hurting anybody. We're not breaking any laws. Why does God care what we do then? The way that people thought about prostitution back then in Corinth, you know what it's most similar to in our day and age? See, for us, we hear prostitution. We're like, oh, that's, that's gnarly stuff, right? That's serious business. But you know what prostitution for them was most similar to in our day and age? It would be pornography. And here's why. Because people would say, hey, people have natural, sensual desires, and you're not hurting anybody, you're not breaking the law, so it shouldn't be a problem, right? You're just getting it out and you're feeling okay. And the, the question is, why does God care what you do with your body? Take a look at how Paul responds. In verse 12, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. Again, quoting the, the argument that people would make, but I will not be dominated by anything. So first of all, here's an important point. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's good. See, here's the thing. God loves you, and he wants what is best for you. Do you know that? Are you, are you sure of that? Because it's true. And so listen, if, if that's true, then if God tells you not to do something, it is only and always because in his wisdom, he knows something that you don't. Is that hard for us to believe, that God actually knows something that we don't, that he knows more than we do, that he's wiser than we are? That should be pretty easy for us to believe. And so if God is wiser than we are, then listen, you know what the essence of faith is? The essence of faith is trusting God enough to do what he says, right? So it's trusting that God really does love you, that he really is pretty smart and wise, and that if he tells you to do something, it is always for your benefit and always because he loves you. And faith means trusting him enough to do what he says, even when you don't see it. You know, there are a lot of things that aren't against the law, but they're still not a very good idea. You can make a list for yourself. Things that are perfectly legal and are really dumb, okay? Like you could pound your head against the wall and the police won't do anything. You could pound a nail through your hand and no one will stop you from doing that, right? Like you won't get arrested or a citation. You can drink a gallon of paint, uh, but that doesn't mean that you should. And so in other words, as followers of Jesus, we don't just ask the question, is it legal when we're making a decision? We ask a bigger, more important question. Is it good? Is it helpful? Does this thing help me or hinder me in my relationship with God? In fulfilling or sharing, fulfilling God's purpose for my life or, or sharing the, the love and truth of God with the world? Another question that this text says that we should ask is, not just is it legal, is it helpful, but also will it dominate me? In other words, uh, will it enslave me? Is this thing going to help me to achieve my goals and callings as a follower of Jesus? Or is it taking away from that and distracting from me? Is it stealing from me resources and time? Is it making me an addict in one form or another? Or, you know, should I do it, even if it's not necessarily sin? Sometimes one of the questions people ask me is they'll ask me, Pastor Nick, is it a sin for me to do this? And they'll fill in the blank. Is it a sin for me to do this? And what I almost always tell them is, that's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question to begin with. Think about it like this. Think about it like if I got married, and then the day after I got married, I picked up the phone, called the police department. I said, hello, police department. Would you please give me a list I've got a pen. I'm going to write it down. Give me a list of all the things I'm not allowed to do to my wife according to the law, 
Right? That would be a pretty weird question to ask, wouldn't it? Right? Like, that's not the kind of question that like a loving husband should ask. He, the question a loving husband asks is not, what can I not do according to the law to my wife? The question a loving husband asks is, what can I do to my wife that will bring her the most joy and pleasure and happiness? And guess what? Those things are probably not against the law. In other words, asking the question, is it a sin for me to do this, is probably the wrong question for you to ask. The right question to ask is rather this. Will this thing please the Lord? Will this thing help me or hinder me in running the race that God has set before me? Will this thing add to or take away from my pursuit of God and his purposes and calling for my life? So in making a decision, Paul gives us three questions to ask. Number one, is it legal? Also related to that is, is it biblical, right? Does the Bible talk about it? And if, it's, if, if the Bible doesn't talk about it and it's not against the law, then you move on to the next question. But if the Bible does talk about it, you've got your answer, all right? That's easy. Um, next, so is it legal? Is it biblical? Next question is, okay, if it's not addressed in the Bible directly, then the next question is, is it helpful, is it helpful? And the third question is, is it enslaving? Does it serve you or does it make you serve it? But then in verse 13, Paul gets right down to the question of why God even cares, right? Like, why does God care about what you do with your body? And here's what he says. Food is meant for the body, or for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God will raise, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that what you do with your body sexually is not the same as eating a sandwich when you're hungry or going to the bathroom when nature calls. Why? Because those things are temporary, right? They will not last for eternity. They have no eternal value or significance. But what you do with your body in regard to sex affects you in a way that's different from the way that food affects you. Why is that? Here's why. Because we are embodied beings. Embodied beings. Remember our sentence? It says this, we are embodied beings. What does that mean? It means that God created you as a whole person, as a whole person, you have a spirit, and he placed that spirit inside of your body. In other words, you're not just like a brain that happens to have legs. God created you as an embodied being, body, mind, and spirit. You are one being, and those three areas are connected. Your body's a major part of who you are and how you live in the world. And guess what? When your body dies, your life here on earth ends. And what the Bible teaches is that what you do with your body here on earth has implications for all of eternity. Think about how that is. What you do with your body here on earth has implications for all of eternity. What you do with your body now can affect your eternal destiny. It can affect the destinies of others. It can have other eternal ramifications. With your body, you can sin, or with your body, you can be connected to God, respond to God, be united to God. But either way, what you do with your body can have ramifications for all of eternity. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, Greek people, most Greek people, believed in something called dualism. Now, dualism. Dualism, and the reason I bring this up is because many people today also have a dualistic view of the world, right? So dualism is kind of the opposite of understanding that we are embodied beings. Let me explain. Dualism basically says that there's a physical aspect of life and there's a spiritual aspect of life. The physical is what you can see, touch, and feel, and the spiritual is unseen. But dualism says that these two realms, the spiritual and the physical, they never touch. They never connect. They're not related at all to one another. In other words, they would say there's nothing spiritual in the physical realm, and there's nothing physical about the spiritual realm. Now, that's different than what the Bible teaches. And this dualistic view of the world, it leads to kind of two major ways of approaching life. On the one hand, it leads to one attitude is hedonism, which is kind of just wanton indulgence of, of physical appetites. The idea that if the physical world has no spiritual significance, then you should just indulge all of your physical appetites, do whatever you want with whomever you want, uh, because it's just physical. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't affect your soul. On the other hand, though, you have the other end of the spectrum, which is asceticism. Now, asceticism is the idea that says this, the physical world has no significance for the spiritual world. Therefore, you should reject all physical pleasure. Instead, you should only do things that are spiritual, and those things are only like prayer and reading the Bible and things like this, right? This is where we get the ascetics, the monks who would go live in the middle of nowhere, right? And they would only pray and only read the Bible and separate themselves from society. That's where these ideas come from, that that's more holy and more spiritual. But what the Bible teaches is something very different. Rather than a dualistic view of the world, the Bible teaches that we are embodied beings and that what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. That's why he says in verse 15, your bodies are members of the body of Christ. In other words, one of the ways that God does his work is through your hands. You know, God does work supernaturally. He works in unseen ways, miraculous, unseen ways. But you know what else? He also works very much in very practical ways through other people's lives and actions and works. And God wants to do his work in very practical ways through you as well. In other words, it isn't only praying and and meditating on scripture that are spiritual activities. Uh, Physical things can also be spiritual activities. Building, giving, speaking, working. These are all activities that have spiritual significance. Everything you do in your life physically can have spiritual significance. Every aspect of your life can be done in service to God and as a way of doing God's work in the world. So here, at the end of chapter 6, understand this. Paul is addressing those who held a hedonistic view that said that what we do with our bodies doesn't have any spiritual significance. And Paul says, no, no, no. Think again. What you do with your bodies has incredible spiritual significance. That's why he says in verse 18, therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, not only are you hurting yourself when you sin in these ways, but you are failing to remember that you have been redeemed by Jesus, and therefore your life is no longer your own. He has purchased you at the cost of his life. He has purchased you out of slavery, out of bondage, out of destruction, and made you his own. So to answer the question, why does God care what you do with your body, Paul would say, wait a second, who said it was your body to begin with? You belong to Jesus, right? You answer to him. You take your cues and directives from him. That's what it means that he is your Lord. Now, remember, that's what Paul said now to the hedonists there at the end of chapter 6. But in the opening verses of chapter 7, Paul is now going to speak to the ascetics as well, those who believed that all physical pleasure was dirty or unspiritual or bad. Look at what he says in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Notice that's in quotes. He's quoting what they said to him. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So whereas some people in the, in the Corinthian church were visiting prostitutes and having sexually immoral relationships, there were others in the church who were going to the exact opposite extreme. Rather than being hedonists, they were being ascetics. And they were saying this, sex is bad and you shouldn't do it even if you're married. Even if you're married. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not it either. We are embodied beings, which means there's a good and healthy and God-given place for sex in your life, and that is within the relationship of marriage. And Paul points out, this is not only true for men, but importantly, he says this is also true for women. Look at what he says in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, the issue here is that some people had this idea that it was more spiritual not to have sex even if you were married. And Paul says, no, that's a terrible idea. That's not spiritual at all. If you're married, you become one flesh. So not only do you belong to God as a child of God, but as a husband and wife, you belong to each other. So not only do you want to serve God with your body, you also want to serve your spouse and help them to walk with God. And part of that includes helping them to avoid unnecessary temptations by being satisfied physically and emotionally in you as their spouse. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What is Paul saying? Listen, Paul was single. And he thought that being single was actually pretty great. Now, there's some pretty good evidence which suggests that at one time in his life, Paul was actually married. But we do know that at this point in his life, for sure, Paul was single. Now, we'll get into more about why some people believe Paul was married at one point in his life. And we'll get into more about why Paul thinks that singleness is a really good thing in our study next week. But for now, let me just point out to you what he says in verse 6. Paul refers to singleness as a gift from God. 
Now, I've met a lot of single people who do not view their singleness as a gift from God. Many of them view it as a curse. Why, God? They, they feel like they're missing out on living a whole and fulfilled life. But let me remind you that Jesus, the person we follow, the greatest, most perfect person who ever lived, was single. He wasn't missing out in any way. Look at what Paul says here in verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Listen, what the Bible is telling us here is that the goal of life, the pinnacle of existence, is not finding a partner and getting married. That is not the greatest thing in life. There's a bigger goal. There's a higher calling. There's a greater purpose, which we have. Our purpose and our goal is that we have been purchased and redeemed by Jesus. Therefore, he has set out a course for our lives. And our goal, our purpose in life is to run that race that God has set before us. And if marriage helps you do that, then good. But you don't need to be married in order to do it. And if you're not married, that doesn't make you incomplete or unfulfilled in any way. Listen, I hope that we as a church can be a place where single people can be comfortable, where married people can come, where widows can be here, and all the rest and everyone who comes can find a community where they are known and loved and embraced and surrounded by other people who will support them in their journey of following Jesus, no matter what stage of life they're at. That brings us to the final point here, which is this. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. And knowing this helps us understand and respond to what Jesus did for us. Friends, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that in the person of Jesus, God became one of us. He became an embodied being. The Bible tells us that God is spirit, and as as a spirit, no one has ever seen God. And yet, rather than just snapping his fingers and making all the problems go away, God took on a physical body. He came to our physical world in order to save us through his physical actions. Through our sins that we committed in our flesh, in this physical world, we have heaped up for ourselves an eternity's worth of judgment and condemnation. But God, because of his great love for you, Peter puts it this way, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree a physical body, a physical tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, physical wounds, you have been healed. It's saying that Jesus, through his physical actions, healed our spiritual sickness. He died so we might live no longer for sin and destruction, but for righteousness. Friends, the reason why God cares what you do with your body is because what you do with your body has spiritual significance. So the question for you and me today is this. Will you glorify God in your body? Will you run the race that God has set before you, casting off anything that would slow you down or hold you back so you can wholeheartedly pursue God's calling for your life? The Corinthian Christians were holding on to some things that were not helping them to mature and progress as disciples of Jesus and as witnesses for Jesus. Friends, is there anything in your life that is not helping you, that you're holding on to, that is not helping you to run the race that God has set before you? May we be those today who fix our eyes on Jesus and seek to glorify God in our bodies. As embodied beings, what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance, and knowing this helps us understand and respond 
to what Jesus did for us. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.